this has really become the, the game stop moment for the U.S. banking system. Earlier this week, the U.S. federal government seized and sold a third failing bank, First Republic. As is true every cycle, when interest rates rise, fragility and economic weakness are revealed. On today's podcast, we explore the repercussions of the regional banking crisis for U.S. policy, for stress testing, and for CFO and treasurer behavior. And we look across the border to understand what it means for Canadian banks. My name is Bill Bird, head of TD Cowan Thematic Content, and our featured experts today are Mario Mendonca, Senior Financial Services Analyst for TD Securities, and Jarrett Seberg, Financial Services and Housing Policy Analyst for TD Cowan Washington Research Group. Jarrett and Mario, welcome and thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Let's get started. Mario and Jarrett, what, if anything, do you believe observers may underappreciate about the current regional banking crisis? So, Bill, maybe I'll I'll start and kick this off. I mean, to me, I think the biggest underappreciated aspect of this, you know, how this has really become the the game stop moment for the U.S. banking system. You know, when when we had the retail trading issues two years ago, uh, everyone thought it was because these were relatively small companies and you had a lot of retail order flow. Um, but I think what we really missed is that it really was the power of social media and the ability of social media uh, to impact the financial performance of, of companies and, and how they trade. And what we're seeing is intense social media focus on a limited number of regional banks. A couple of them obviously had problems, highly exposed uh, to uninsured deposits and risk of depositor flight. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, banks are always illiquid. You know, they always rely on deposits and turn them into highly illiquid loans. And no bank can survive a 20 or 25% deposit flight. And so I, I think, you know, what we're really seeing are uh, modern uh, communications, modern trading, the ability to move money at the flip of a switch, uh, coming headlong into an industry. Uh, that just is not set up or prepared for that uh, type of experience. Yeah, from my perspective, uh, one of the things that really stood up for me is that all of the ratios that regulators have our banks calculate, both in Canada and the U.S., these ratios were sort of built at a time uh, before we really contemplated the speed with which money can move, as Jared said. Uh, I'll give you an example. The liquidity coverage ratio has you estimate stressed cash outflows, but there's no element in the stressed cash outflows that captures the source of the deposit. Is it digital? Was it branch? So what I really feel we need to, we need to learn is that these liquidity coverage ratios and others ratio, other ratios need to actually capture the nature of the deposit, not just whether it's a retail deposit or institutional deposit, but even so much as how did you get that deposit? And I, I think, regulation needs to adapt to the new environment. So I'd say that's that's the first thing that occurred to me, uh, the point that regulation needs to adapt to the, the new way deposits are gathered. And the second thing that I think might be underappreciated is if you're a treasurer or a CFO, you can't unsee this SVB and First Republic demise. And what I mean by that, you can't unsee it. You have to react to this. You have to react and that may be holding more liquidity 
at uh, the Bank of Canada or the Federal Reserve. It may be uh, boosting your liquidity coverage ratio. It may be pre-funding in the wholesale market. And as behavior changes, as banks shift from focusing solely on pro- or predominantly on profitability, to, and they shift that focus towards stability and security, there are implications for earnings. And what we need to learn as investors and analysts over the next com- in the coming quarters is what are those implications and how long lasting will they be? And I think those are the two points I'd highlight as perhaps most underappreciated. You, you've both touched on some of the root causes, uh, the speed of money, the virality of social media and how quickly the, the script can flip. Jared, maybe fill that out a little bit more in terms of why didn't Washington see the bank, banking crisis coming? It's not that it didn't see the crisis coming. I mean, we've heard warnings about uh, you know, unrealized losses on available for sale securities for a while. I think the what Washington didn't appreciate was how quickly investor attention could turn and how quickly uh, large depositors would react uh, to the news. And it's that speed that really caught regulators by surprise. You know, we if you look at a, a lot of the documents that came out in the recent congressional hearings, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco was talking to Silicon Valley Bank about a lot of these shortcomings 12 months ago, 18 months ago. But, you know, normally uh, banks have years to fix these problems and, and, you know, reform happens slowly. And I think, you know, if we go back to some of the lessons from this crisis, it's that, you know, the traditional way of back and forth negotiations between examiners and bank boards it just doesn't work in a in a time when information moves so quickly and you know bank customers can react immediately. One thing I'd I'd want to add to that, Jared, and I I'll, candidly, I was almost irritated to watch this crisis unfold. It is no surprise to anyone that when interest rates go up, the value of your long-term bond portfolio will go down. That cannot be a surprise. Uh, it is the most basic of financial. Uh, fundamentals that, you know, a a stream of cash flows will go down in value as rates go up. What, what I, when I say candidly, this crisis sort of irritated me is if the value of your assets are going down because rates are going up, well, then the value of your liabilities are also going down. Wholesale funding, for example, in theory, that the value of the liabilities are also going down. So why did this become a crisis at all? It only became a crisis because of concerns that the banks would have to sell those securities. And and this goes to what Jared was mentioning a moment ago. If you don't light the fire or you don't scream fire in a crowded theater, then there's no need to sell those securities, in which case the decline in the value of the liabilities, the decline in the value of assets, they sort of offset each other in an economic from an economic perspective the only reason why this becomes an issue is if you yell fire in a crowded theater so i i felt i felt like it was uncomfortable to watch people fret about the decline of the value of the assets without also thinking about the liabilities yeah you know bill i think mario is really hit the nail on the head there because you know I, at the beginning i i described this as the seinfeld of crises you know it's a crisis about nothing because the reality is that you can't just look at one half of the balance sheet and say, we're going to mark half the balance sheet to market and we're going to 
you know, ignore the liability side. And, you know, that wasn't just with Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, we're seeing that today. People are looking at other regional banks. They're stress testing their uh, loan portfolios to a severely adverse scenario, like in the stress test. They're assuming all the losses on their uh, securities portfolios, but then they're doing nothing on the liability side. And if you do that, of course, a bank's going to look insolvent, but that's not reality. Yeah, if I could just add one other thing to this. One of the emails I read from, um, it was an email that went to a client. It was from uh, another analyst. And and what the person had written, the analyst had written, is that if the banks were forced to sell all their securities, they would realize these losses. And I, I almost fell off my chair because the the ironic thing about that that email is that if the banks were to sell all their securities, the unrealized losses would look like peanuts compared to the realized losses. So if you assume the bank is dead, then the bank is dead. And that's the point I'm trying to make here is the assumption itself is what causes the bank to fall, to fail. So the moment you start saying things like if they are forced to sell all their securities, it would record these unrealized losses. It's a really a meaningless statement because you're essentially saying they're done. Because if everybody's rushing to the exit at the same time, the unrealized losses are are peanuts compared to the realized losses. Yeah, and and you know to follow that up, you know the Fed came out with really an unprecedented program in which they're saying you can pledge all your government and agency securities at par. You know it doesn't matter what what the rate is, you can pledge them at par for liquidity. Uh, you know that is um, that that should eliminate any need for any bank to sell its available for sale securities or God forbid their held to maturity securities in response to a, a liquidity uh, run. And yet you still see analyses out there of people assuming that banks are gonna have to liquidate these portfolios and take these losses. I wanna get into some of the regulatory actions in a moment, but before we go there, Mario, it would be helpful to get your perspective on the Canadian banks. What has been their experience in this crisis? Have they experienced the runoff in the U.S. businesses like the U.S. regionals, or have they been beneficiaries like the money centers? Well, Canadian banks, first of all, let's separate Canada from the U.S. The runoff, the deposit runoff that is evident in the U.S. has not played out in Canada. And it might simply be that quantitative easing, which was what drove this significant increase in deposits, was not as robust in Canada as what was, was what we saw in the US. Certainly our Bank of Canada balance sheet moved a lot higher, just as what we saw with the Fed balance sheet, but we didn't have the same level of quantitative easing in Canada. It stands to reason then, uh, as we go through our quantitative tightening, we're not gonna see the same deposit runoff in Canada. And so far, although Canadian data is delayed relative to what you, you folks get in the US, we, we're not seeing any deposit runoff for the Canadian banks. Now, for our Canadian banks that have large operations in the U.S., we are seeing deposits shrink relative to where they were a year ago. Every bank is. That is just the nature of quantitative tightening. But what I think is really important to highlight is our Canadian banks did not see any of the panic runoff of deposits during that stressed period of March. Would I call them the JP Morgans? No, I don't think our banks were net beneficiaries, but I can say with some confidence, and this is frankly from having spoken to them directly throughout March, that's what you do when you go into these panic periods. 
is our banks did not see any aggressive deposit outflows uh, during that March period in their U.S. businesses. But, you know, to take it one step further, other than a few banks in the U.S., most deposits, as these U.S. Uh, regionals have reported over the last few weeks, they're, they're actually look pretty good. Um, we're not seeing, this does seem rather isolated to a few banks. So uh, to call this even a crisis might even be a bit of an overstatement. Garrett, let's shift gears to the regulatory context. What do you believe are the regulatory implications of what's happening to the U.S. regionals? And what does it mean for bank stress testing going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think the old way of uh, trying to correct behavior at banks uh, has to be thrown out uh, the window. It just doesn't work. It takes too long. It's measured in years, not months or weeks. And given the speed of money today and the speed of social media, uh, it's just no longer effective. It's why I think you're going to see a return to relying on the stress test uh, to really change bank behavior. I expect the Federal Reserve in the next month or so is going to uh, overhaul the annual stress test. Uh, There's going to be many more scenarios and sub-scenarios, including an interest rate risk scenario. And they're going to use essentially public shaming to convince banks to modify their behavior much more quickly. Uh, The theory is no bank wants to fail the annual stress test or any component of the stress test. And therefore, they're going to uh, change their balance sheet much faster than if they're just having discussions with examiners. You know, something interesting is happening in Canada from a regulatory perspective. Our regulator, the OSFI, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, they put out their 2023-2024 outlook and moving into the number two spot of their nine risks, number two was funding and liquidity. Number one is always the housing market in Canada. That's the perennial favorite uh, whipping boy in Canada. So number two is funding and liquidity. It's the first time it appeared as the number two risk for our regulator. And in that document, the regulator says that they are going to intensify their review of liquidity and funding. That's an important statement from our regulator. They go one step further and say they may introduce new liquidity and funding requirements, and then they use the word I hate to hear and see in these documents is, the rules may be imposed in a non-public manner. Uh, Jared referred to public shaming. In Canada, we never do that with our banks. In Canada, what happens is everything happens behind the scenes. As an analyst and investor, certain changes uh, and behavior changes among our banks, we never understand why until it's until much, much later. Everything seems to be happen, seems to happen behind uh, the curtains in Canada. But our regulator has taken a shot across the bow and let our banks know that uh, they will be looking at liquidity and funding a little more intensely than they have in the past. Hey, Bill, if I could um, add to that, you know, one of the biggest changes uh, during the Trump administration when it comes to bank oversight was elimination of the qualitative stress tests in addition to the quantitative stress test. And that qualitative stress test really looked at how bank management runs the bank and how they manage for risk. And the loss of that tool, uh, I think, really uh, hurt the ability of the regulators uh, to pressure the banks to move quickly. Uh, It's a big hurdle to bring back the qualitative side of this test. 
Uh, but I would be be looking for that. I certainly think that that's back in the realm of possibility now, uh, just given everything that's happened. Let's shift gears and and talk about treasurer and CFO behavior. Mario, you've covered this sector for two decades plus. How do you think recent events will change treasurer and CFO behavior going forward? And are there earnings implications? If you're a Canadian treasurer, CFO, or frankly, uh, US or Canadian, you cannot ignore what you just saw with SVB and First Republic. And you can't ignore what our Canadian regulator has said about intensifying the review of liquidity and funding. So the ways you react are you shift from focusing predominantly on profitability, you shift toward security and safety. And that could be things like pre-funding in the wholesale market. You don't want to be shut out of the wholesale market if there's a period of stress. So you fund as early as you can, even if that means you have to pay up. I think you hold more cash with at the um, at your central bank, Bank of Canada, the Federal Reserve. Uh, you probably slow loan growth somewhat. You do everything you can to increase your liquidity coverage ratios because you want to look good uh, to your regulator. And also, you want practically, you want to have a lot of liquidity. All of these things have implications. And I, I think the key implications would be your balance sheet doesn't grow as quickly as it used to. Historically, Canadian bank balance sheets grow at about 7% a year. It would have to be something less than that. And uh, your margins. Our Canadian banks have seen their margins increase over the last few quarters uh, smartly. And I think the same things happened with the U.S. regionals. But look what happened to U.S. regional margins. After being up 25 basis points sequentially for the last three quarters, margins were down about five or six basis points for the U.S. regionals when they reported their Q1 23 results. That's the sort of thing that you might see in Canada. Margins flatline, possibly decline a little bit. And that's an, that's been an important driver of earnings growth. So the key implication is as you shift from profitability to safety and security, you boost your ratios, but you lose a little bit of earnings momentum. Let's shift to deposit insurance. Jared, can Washington realistically establish unlimited deposit insurance to put worries over regional banks to bed? Okay, so that's really a two-part question. The first part is, would it that even put worries to bed? And I'm not sure it would. Uh, you have some banks right now that are still under pressure, even though they report liquidity uh, in excess of 150% of their uninsured deposits. In other words, uh, all those uninsured deposits could leave and the bank would still be uh, up and running. Uh, but let's put aside that question and get to the broader uh, policy question, which is, could we even get to unlimited deposit insurance? And the short answer is, I think, uh, not in this current environment. Uh, you know, I think the closest we can get is what we have, which is an implicit uh, deposit insurance system in which uh, the government has effectively said that any bank that fails uh, in the coming months because of this crisis is going to be deemed systemic and they won't let uh, uninsured depositors lose any money. And in fact, nobody at uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank or First Republic has lost a penny in deposits. Getting a more formal deposit insurance program, something similar to the TAG program from the financial crisis, that would require an act of Congress. Uh, there's two ways to do it. Either Congress passes legislation in the old fashioned way, which is uh, virtually impossible in this uh, you know, highly partisan environment uh, with uh, control of both chambers so narrow. Uh, the other way would be for Treasury, the FDIC and the Federal Reserve 
to deem a essentially a financial or systemic uh, event and to send a resolution to Capitol Hill to authorize a short-term unlimited deposit insurance program. Um, that can't be filibustered in the Senate, and so it means that it could have a shot to pass. Um, the reason they haven't done that is they fear a replay of TARP, where uh, all eyes were on Congress and would Congress pass TARP, and as it became clear that the TARP uh, vote during the financial crisis would fail, the market started to plunge. And they don't want another high-profile vote like that uh, because they think it could backfire on them. I'll, I'll leave the policy commentary to Jared, but what I can offer is that nothing's free. There is a cost to all of this government support. Um, in the case of deposit insurance, we're seeing materially higher deposit insurance assessment costs. Every bank talked about it on their calls. You can see it in their results. And in Canada, uh, again, under the caption of nothing's free, the Canadian government has introduced a number of tax measures to essentially claw back some of the support that they offered, not to the banks directly, but to the bank customers. So it really does fall under the caption of nothing's free in this world. Jared, what are some of the other policy initiatives you're watching that investors will want to pay attention to? Sure. So, I mean, I think we have a significant uh, regulatory revamp that's coming down the pike. Uh, that includes implementing the final phase of Basel III, uh, sometime known as the Basel III endgame. Uh, we're expecting to get that proposal in June. Uh, that's sort of the last step of the post-financial crisis uh, capital overhaul. I also think you're going to see a lot more focus on the regional banks and how they're regulated. Uh, there was a pullback coming uh, in 2018 uh, when we adopted the tailoring rule to try to dial back some of the oversight of the regional banks. But given that the regionals were the uh, focal point for what's been transpiring over the last month or so, that is going to change. Uh, the comptroller of the currency, Michael Sue, has been pushing for TLAC for regional banks. TLAC is a type of uh, unsecured long-term debt. Uh, that can help if a regional bank gets into financial distress. I think you will see that get pushed down to banks uh, with up to $100 billion of assets. And then I think you'll probably see some changes on the resolution planning side as well. Uh, there's a thing known as single point of entry. It's designed to make it easier to sell off parts of a bank uh, if it gets into trouble. That currently does not apply to the regionals, and I think you'll see that get pushed down to them as well. And then finally, there's going to be a look at uh, the available for sale securities portfolios. I do think uh, you'll see them treated similar to the USG SIBs, uh, which are the largest banks in that uh, unrealized gains and losses will get reflected in capital. And I expect you'll see a lot more regulatory scrutiny of the held to maturity portfolios to ensure the bank really does have the capacity to hold those securities uh, until they mature. So there is a Canadian uh, element to this. Our Canadian banks at the top of the house, their consolidated balance sheets and their capital ratios do reflect the unrealized losses on available for sale securities. It does. But their US regulated entities do not. 
So our Canadian banks are like the regionals and not the GSIBs in the US. So say, take one of our Canadian banks, BMO's big US business, that US business, the capital ratio does not reflect the unrealized losses associated with their available for sale securities accounts. So if those, if those standards do change, as Jared suggests, it will affect our Canadian banks. Now, here's the interesting thing. If the top of the house already captures the unrealized losses, but the US business doesn't, then what's the remedy? The remedy would be to allocate capital from the top of the house to the US operating company. So I don't think this would involve our Canadian banks having to raise equity. It'd be more of an allocation of capital from one place to another because the top of the house, the consolidated entity, already captures the unrealized losses. The final point I'd make is, if we're going to make changes of this nature, if, if the regulators are gonna make changes of the nature, they had better uh, phase this in. Um, I don't think you want to impose uh, changes to AFS or held, certainly not held to maturity securities. You don't really want to impose those changes abruptly. Uh, I don't think the capital ratios could stomach that. Yeah, I think Mario's uh, last point is spot on. And in fact, there could be such a long ramp up for this that those unrealized losses actually become unrealized gains hmm. um, or at least, uh, you know, may end up being neutral. So this could end up really by the time it's fully implemented, not having much impact on the banks themselves. But just, just think about this for a moment. If you're a money center bank or, or a large Canadian bank in the US and you know that over time, um, you will have to report your unrealized losses, gains and losses associated with available sales securities in your capital ratio, you may change how you invest your excess deposits. Because in the US, the, the math is pretty simple. Deposits are far greater than loans. So you take the excess deposits, you invest them in something. If you don't want significant volatility in your capital ratio arising from significant changes in interest rates, well, then you have to invest in short dated securities. Now, if you invest in shorter dated securities, then aren't you impacting your net interest, your net interest uh, margin? So changes in regulation, even if they're phased in, could have implications for profitability down the road. There could be meaningful implications for investors in the regionals if these changes are forthcoming. Before we wrap up, Mario, what are some upcoming TD Securities events related to banking and financial services that are worth highlighting? Yeah, there's one big one in London, England on June 19th and 20th. I host all of the Canadian bank CFOs uh, for one-on-one -on -one meetings with uh, international investors this year. I've asked the Canadian life insurance companies and the PNC insurance companies to join us. So it'll be quite a few banks, insurance companies, CFOs with me in London, England, June 19th and 20th. That's the big one I'm doing this year. Mario and Jared, uh, we've covered a lot of ground today. Thanks for an excellent discussion. I look forward to checking in with you both in coming months to see how things are progressing. I also want to thank our listeners. We appreciate you and we look forward to getting together for next month's episode. Be well and see you next month.